Well, let's go ahead and start with prayer. Father, we thank you for the work that you've done in Jesus Christ to provide salvation for us. We thank you also for the work of your spirit to call us out of darkness into the light. And we thank you for the privilege that we have to share that. I pray, Father, that you'd use your word to be an encouragement to us today to be diligent about praying for the lost, praying for you to provide uh, workers for reaching the lost, and that uh, we also will be willing and involved in somehow going and participating in the work uh, with our own witness as well. Pray that you give us understanding and encouragement from the scriptures, we pray and ask in Jesus' name, amen. So you may have gathered from the screenshot that I've decided not to do First Kings. Uh, if you were here last week, we essentially got to 1 Kings 22:40, which left maybe 10 to 15 verses at the end of 1 Kings. So we, in my mind, we essentially finished it, and basically the book is really just continuing into the Second Kings and only having about three weeks left, I figured... There's no way I'm going to finish 2 Kings in a way that would be proper to, uh, to do it anyway. Um, and I figured, I, you know, now that Mark Snowberger's coming, he could uh, for sure just pick it up right there. Um, not, not sure that he will. But um, So we essentially finished with 1 Kings, which ended with the, the overthrow of Ahab there, God bringing justice on Ahab. And if you were just to read those last few verses in the chapter, basically... It talks about how uh, Jehoshaphat, who is the king of the south, was uh, a pretty good king and was leading the south. So the south has some good kings. And you read at the end of 1 Kings that Ahaziah, I think it is, the son of Ahab, takes over. And he's a wicked king, pretty much like his father. So, And then it's going to continue into 2 Kings. So I figured with the last few weeks that I had, I figured I would focus on some topics that were near and dear to my heart that I was concerned about for your sake that I would address while we still have time. So I think we have tonight and then two more Sunday evening or afternoons to, to uh, preach. Um, so we'll continue in 2 Corinthians in the morning, but uh, we're, we're going to do a few different things in the evening. So... We're going to be in Matthew chapter 9 tonight, but I wanted to share with you some statistics before we jump there. Um, this is a very familiar passage, I realize, and sometimes familiarity breeds contempt. Um, hopefully you don't feel that way about any scripture, of course, but um, it's, I know it's a very familiar passage. Um, but I wanted to challenge you with some things about this that uh, I think are good for us to remember. So some statistics in, in general um, about the state of the Word of God throughout the world. So um, I may have to turn around to read these. Oh, so there's 531 languages. This is, of course, a statistic I got from a source that reported this in 2014. So the numbers may be a little different today, but um, I think still fairly accurate. So 531 languages with a complete Bible. There are 1,329 more that have a New Testament, but don't have, therefore, the Old Testament. 
and there are uh, about 1,023 that have one or more individual books of the Bible. Like I know a lot of times their missionaries go out, they're handing out John and Romans or Acts and Romans or those kinds of things. So um, you add those up, that equals about 2,883 languages with some form of scripture in their own language. Now my understanding, according to the survey, there are approximately 7,000 active languages. So what's the conclusion, therefore? The conclusion is there's over 4,000 languages with no scripture at all. Now, if that's the case, that's a pretty desperate situation because in order to come to faith, what are we told that you need? Faith comes by hearing the word of God. So we need the Word of God. Now, it may be in some of these languages there is uh, understanding of the Word of God in portions or, you know, it's not necessarily written down in a written form, but I think the point is still clear. There is a desperate need for the gospel around the world. The Apostle Paul talks about his burden as an apostle was to take the gospel where it hadn't gone. And I think there's a great uh, benefit to thinking that way about the need of the gospel around the world. So as we look at this topic of taking the gospel around the world and thinking about the gospel and the needs of people, let's look where we always should look um, is at the scripture and at our Savior as the example. So let's look at Matthew 9. And we'll see in 3538 uh, the example of our Savior's compassion and concern. So let's look there at verse 35 to 38 and start with that. It says, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. So we see the example of the Savior here constantly ministering as we start this section. Notice the activities of his ministry in verse 35 we see that he is engaged in teaching. He's engaged in teaching. It says he is going throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues. So the idea is ordered, detail, detailed, powerful instruction that he's giving to the people, and he is, is teaching those that will come and listen. He's teaching in the synagogues and all throughout their cities and villages. We're also told that he is preaching. It says he is proclaiming. That is the, the word for preaching. He is proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He is, he is preaching. He is uh, uh, setting forth the facts for them to understand the coming. Uh, at this point, he's talking about the coming of the kingdom um, and the requirements for entering the kingdom. Um, as we see in, in Mark in particular, talks about that right at the beginning. He says, repent and believe. 
Um, so he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom here. And we also see that uh, he is healing as well. So we have him teaching, preaching, and healing here. It says every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now, I think it's important to understand uh, his main focus wasn't coming to heal and rid the world of disease. That wasn't his purpose. In fact, there's times where he's done miracles that so many people show up that he can't even get through or can't even go where he'd like to go and to proclaim and teach freely because there's so many people that have crowded around. And that's what would happen if he continued to only focus on a healing and physical ministry. It was actually signs indicating who he was, not that he didn't care about their condition. The point was their spiritual condition was more important and the healing was a sign of who he was and a demonstration that he is the Messiah. But these are the kinds of activities we see the Savior engaged in here in verse 35. But notice also the areas where he ministered. Uh, we alluded to some of this already, but notice areas of his ministry. Where does he minister? It says, first of all, throughout all the cities. All the cities and villages or, or towns, right? Uh, cities, towns, and surrounding villages, all right? So he is basically ministering everywhere. He is sharing the gospel. He's preaching the good news. He is talking to all who will listen. We also see that he is going to synagogues. And he is also going to uh, the streets. Basically, everywhere that people are, he is sharing the good news. And this is, in fact, a great example. He is there to share the message. He wants people to hear. He has no hesitation about where he's going. He's sharing everywhere and with everyone who will listen, as we see also when we talk about his audience. Who is he talking with? We said he's at the synagogues. It tells us in verse 35, he's at the synagogue. So what kind of people would come to the synagogue? That would be the religious people, right? People who know something or have some interest in the Old Testament scriptures at this point, Jewish, Jewish gathering. So he is speaking to those who have a religious interest at this point um, by coming to the synagogue. But also, as we've said, he's talking to the rest, the crowds, everyone. He's out in the streets. He's in the, the cities and villages. He is basically taking the message everywhere. And this is a great example for us and what we should do in sharing the gospel message. We should be exhaustive in trying to get the message out. We should attempt to reach all kinds of people. We shouldn't be limiting ourselves to whom we, we would share the gospel. Now, I got to tell you, I, uh, went to, uh, I went to lunch. We went to uh, International House Pancakes uh, for lunch after the morning service today. Now, the line, was, the line was really bad. But I was trying really hard to strike up a conversation with this guy that I was standing next to in line. And we got all the way to the point where we were talking about where we went to high school. And he went to, uh, he went to the... Uh, 
Royal Oak Shrine, if you want to, I guess it's a Catholic high school, and then maybe Detroit Jesuit or something. So I'm like, oh, you're Catholic? Are you Catholic? No, I'm not Catholic. But we didn't get to go any farther. You know, I was extra sensitive, I have to admit, because we just talked about the importance of sharing the gospel this morning. Now, we're not always in every situation. I didn't, I didn't really get a chance to go into the gospel with him. But it is a reminder to me that everywhere I go, I need to be seeking for, praying for, looking for those opportunities to share the gospel. The gospel isn't something we rejoice in and celebrate just on Sundays or Wednesdays. And I know I'm talking to the faithful crowd here, so I know you know that. But it is important that we are thoughtful about the needs of the, the, the multitudes. And that's actually where we're going next. Verse 36, we see the compassion of our Savior. We need to have this kind of compassion like our Savior had, we see in verse 36. Look at verse 36. It says, Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed, dispirited, like sheep without a shepherd. So our Lord is aware of the needs. It says he saw the crowds or seeing the people. He recognizes the needs, but we know because he is God, he knows all things. He is aware of the needs. He is constantly aware of the needs of the people. And it's interesting, it says that he is affected by the problems. Look at the responses. He felt compassion. He had pity. He had concern. He was concerned about them because of their state. And it talks about their state here. What, what was their situation like? It says that they were distressed, dispirited, like sheep having no shepherd. So they were weary or they were faint. That's the idea. They're falling down due to lack of strength. Now my question for you is, do you think what he's seeing here, what he's aware of, what he's thinking about, about them, and why he's concerned is because of their physical situation. I don't think so. These are spiritual needs that he sees. They are, it says, sheep without a shepherd, uh, the third one there. Um, it is not just their physical condition that they're weak. The idea is that spiritually they're weak. They, they don't know God. They, they haven't had their sins forgiven. They're under the burden of their sin, and there's no one that can help them understand how to have their sins taken care of. So they're, they're weary. They are lost. It says they're scattered abroad. Literally, the word is to be flung or thrown aside. They're not cared for. They're not organized and, and taught and helped. They're abused and thrown down. Uh, they're really helpless, and it says... They're leaderless. They don't have a shepherd that can properly help them. Sure, they're re religious leaders in that day. But they weren't giving them the truth. They weren't really helping them to know God and live for Him. They were being led astray for those that would even seek the religious guidance at that time. They were sheep without shepherds. So we see our Lord had compassion on the multitudes. A great challenge and encouragement for us as well to see the needs of people, to see the needs of people, to be burdened about their souls. 
My, uh, I can't share any of the details because uh, one of the students is here, but my wife was telling me recently about some of the discussion in her classroom about some of the kids, and they were sharing hard things that they had been going through as kids. And I think it was a prayer request session or something. They were sharing prayer requests, and just some of the discussion was amazing to know the difficulties and the hurts and the challenges that these little third graders are, are bearing up under that have, they've experienced. And, and it's a great reminder that we don't know. We, if you know Jesus Christ, you have an incredible luxury and privilege of having a stability and a security in your life and a peace that people who don't have that don't have that luxury. And we sometimes forget, especially uh, perhaps if you were saved at a really young age. And, but even as somebody who was saved older at 19, I too forget what I was like before those years. People need the Lord and is desperate without him. And it leads to a concern ultimately for messengers. So let's see verses 37 and 38. It's not just a hopeless scene with nothing to do about it. There's something to do about it. Verse 37, it says, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Verse 38, Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. So, he talks first about the size of the harvest. Notice the size of the harvest. The harvest is plentiful. And he talks about the shortage of workers. He says the workers are few. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but I tend to think the problem is the opposite way, don't you? Really? Don't you? I, I tend to think we want to share the gospel, we try to share the gospel, and people don't want to hear it. So in my experience often seems that we have people that are willing to share the gospel and so few that are willing to hear it. But what does our Lord say? The harvest is plentiful. Now, he's using here the metaphor of an agricultural system, right? That he was speaking to a people who lived in an agricultural system. They're farmers, mostly. And he's talking about reaping a harvest. He's, he's not even talking about just the work of sharing the gospel. He's talking about sharing the gospel and people responding to the gospel and the discipleship work that goes with that. And he's saying the harvest is plentiful. I think one of the reasons why we may be limited is we often think about our own little bubble. We think about the people that we know and we've tried to share the gospel with and they're not interested. Or we think about our, our city and our country and as a whole there's been a falling away from the Lord that's happened in our country, there's been a lot uh, of what we had as a country at the start, a lot, uh, a lot greater uh, number of 
percentage of people that would claim to be Christians, whether, you know, whatever the, the legitimate numbers are, we don't know for sure, but there certainly was a much greater profession of percentage-wise than is true in our country today, and there's, there's a widespread falling away that we've been seeing and observing in our churches. We could talk about years ago and how we had so many members and we don't have so many members today, but I think we need to think beyond our little bubble. We need to think about the world as a whole. And there are places where people don't have the gospel. And there are places where people are eager to hear the gospel. I'm still amazed to think about the work that's happened. I, I think you're familiar, perhaps, with Tanzania. Um, there's a, a couple missionaries that went to Tanzania. One of them was sent out of inner city, maybe more than one. I know we have a, a replacement that's there, but originally we had Rob Howell that went there, and a number of churches got started. Many, many people got saved. Multiple churches got started within years of being on the field. A number of people won, and churches started, and, and it continues to grow. There are places where people eagerly receive the gospel, and we need to think beyond just our little sphere of what we're familiar with. But it also is something that we should recognize takes time and patience. How many of us truly responded to and received the gospel on the first occasion of hearing it? I know in my case it took multiple times. And, and, the, and there were even times where it seemed like I thought I maybe was doing it or kind of half-heartedly committed to it. But that wasn't the real thing. It takes time, it takes patience. I remember hearing from Roy Oshiro, who was a missionary in Japan, spent many, many, many faithful years as a missionary in Japan. And one of the things that he stressed in talking about the, the work of missions is he, he was using the illustration of growing things. He said, if you're gonna grow a plant, you might only need a, a few months. If you're going to grow a tree, you need years. And he said, if you're going to grow Christians, it's going to take a lifetime. And I believe his point was the investment in mission work, the investment in sharing the gospel and discipling people is not a fast process. It's a slow process and it takes a lot of time, investment, energy, and commitment to it. But it's worth it. And there's a shortage of people doing this work, is what our Lord tells us. There's a shortage. There needs to be more. There needs to be more work to be, because there's more work to be done than uh, the current people doing the work. So what are we to do about that? We are to seek the Lord to meet that need. Verse 38, he says, Therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. So what do we do? We seek the Lord. But notice... The Lord of the harvest. It's His. So we ask Him to provide the workers for it. We ask Him to meet this need. This word, actually, of the Lord to send out workers, it, it has the idea of casting out or throwing out there. There's, a, I believe, a sense of urgency about it that we pray that, the, that God would send forth workers. So think about the whole process, though. 
What's involved in sending out workers? Do we just get somebody to come knock on our church door and say, hey, I'm going to Zambia, and can you hook me up with some dough? I'm ready to go tomorrow. Um, you know, just send me, I'll be on my way. Is that the process? Not at all. Think about the process. It takes years of training. There's character development, right? Discipleship that needs to go on in the individual's life. There is theological training, hopefully, most of the time when we send people over. There might be, depending on where they're going, there may be language training that needs to happen. In some, in some cases, we, we, uh, want, we usually don't want to send over a single guy all by himself, you know, on a foreign country. Usually we like it if he's got a, a wife. Um, that's not the only way we do it, but often we want he's going to be married or have a family, or perhaps in some cases there's going to be teens. My point isn't to lay out a formula. My point is to challenge your thinking and mine that this work is very needed and it's more than just somebody deciding to go. It's a commitment and it takes time. So there's multiple pieces of that that we can and should be praying for. Praying that God will prepare. We have the seminary where we have young men training. You're hoping perhaps one of those guys will be the guy that comes here. We, you had a seminary guy come here previously. You have currently a guy who was from the seminary. So we should be engaged in praying for that kind of ministry, right? Because it is a part of the way the Lord sends people into his harvest. So there's a lot, if we think about it that way, there's a lot to pray for in the makeup of that. If you're a parent, if you're a grandchild, I'm sorry, if you're a parent or a grandparent or a great-grandparent, we should be praying that God might send some of our own to go. And we should be willing to let him take them. We've talked about it more than once, but literally we were having this conversation in our home not long ago. We would miss children that went overseas to serve the Lord, but we would be thrilled that they're doing it. We should, we should pray that God would do that with our children. We also should be willing to go ourselves. I, some of us might be thinking, you know, well, I've reached a stage in life I'm not useful. That's not necessarily true. You don't know. I was, I was hearing of, uh, when we were at Inner City, I was hearing of uh, Pastor Doran talk about someone who was in their 50s that went overseas to start a business and participate in the support of and the help in a ministry on the foreign field that was going on. We, we don't know. We should pray, though, that God meets this need. It is urgent that this need be met. We pray that God will do it. But it also takes a lot of faith, doesn't it? We need to be recognizing the truth of the Scriptures, even if it doesn't match our experience. That there is a great need, there is a great urgency, and we need to therefore pray for it. But I want you to see with me the rest of the story, if you will, that I think we often miss when we look at 35 to 38. Did you notice I had some extra verses in there? You know, the typical presentation of this passage is 35 to 38. Well, on purpose, I draw your attention to chapter 10. 
Because what happens there is the commissioning of ministers here, our Lord actually sends some people out. Look at verse 1. Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. All right. Um, that's the same work he's doing. He's going to have them do. Look at verses 5 and 6. These 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles. Do not enter any city of, of the Samaritans. But rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Alright, so what do we have here? We have the disciples are... Uh, given authority here in verse 1. They are told who their audience is in 5 and 6, and they're given an assignment in 7 and 8. What, what's the point? The point is, who did our Lord tell to pray that the Lord would send out workers? The disciples. And who's He sending out? The disciples. So if you're praying, you're obeying what our Lord says, you and I should be willing to be part of that workforce. What about children? Are you willing to pray and ask God to work in your life if He wants you to go and serve Him in full-time ministry? Whether you go full-time or not, all of us should be engaged in this ministry. The audience for us taking the message may simply be our immediate family or our co-workers and neighbors. That may be our audience, our obligation. But all of us should be engaged in this work of sharing the gospel. When, when Joanne and I were over in China uh, this, this past summer, uh, we had a time where we were able to talk with the Chinese pastor. And a, as you know, and Josh was here, he, he explained some of these things. But in China, it was a little different than I expected. But what Josh basically explained to us was, you're allowed as an individual adult to believe whatever you want. They don't just come and throw you in prison because you claim to be a Christian. The issue is when you try to disciple or proselytize or to convert other people to become a Christian, that's where you could get in trouble. Now, as Josh pointed out, they're doing that, but they're doing it carefully, and usually the government doesn't get involved until it's uh, you know, they reach a certain level of influence or impact where it becomes obvious at some level. But we, we were talking to the pastor, and I asked him, since it's really prohibited from uh, you proselytizing openly, publicly, how do you do it? How do you obey the Great Commission? How do you share the gospel? What do you do? And his answer was simple. We share with our family and our co-workers. Same kind of thing we should be doing, right? 
we should be sharing the gospel with those with whom we know personally, friends, neighbors, co-workers, family. That's our primary targets. We should be praying for God to bring workers to the harvest, but we also should recognize praying that way means we're going to have to be involved as well. And that it may mean we need to yield up, recognize God may use our family members. Be willing to let him do that. But we should be engaged in the work. This is a urgent priority. But I would also draw your attention to something I wanted to be careful to balance with some of the modern day thinking. And we talked about this this morning as well. God is the master of the harvest, right? It's His. We cannot force someone to believe anything. And if somebody does come to believe as a result of us sharing the gospel, and that's a genuine conversion, we don't deserve any credit for that conversion other than simply obeying God's command to share the gospel. You follow me? We can't win the souls ourselves. We can't save the souls ourselves. However, it's an interesting balance or tension because, yes, God is sovereign. He's ultimately in control and He has to work in their hearts, but He uses us to share the message. We should be burdened to pray for the lost and interestingly what's the focus of our lord in this passage his his focus isn't even on praying for the individuals who are lost it's praying for god to send workers we need to be praying for god to send workers there are many 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 needs so this isn't as grand and as global, but I just share a couple of statistics with you that I found about Royal Oak. It, it was, uh, I think, citydata.com, and the numbers were from 2014. But this is our Jerusalem, right? This is our primary outreach target, right? So the population of Royal Oak in 2014, as I found, was 59,000. Does that match with about what you'd understand? It seemed lower. I thought it would be higher than that. But 59,000. And interestingly, they don't think there's a single rural person. It's, all, it's just one big city landscape, right? All right. So about 59,000. Of that 59,000, that's about half male and female. All right. But also interesting is the median age is about 36, whereas for Michigan, it's 39. So perhaps a little bit of a younger crowd in Royal Oak than some other places. Well, and maybe because there's no rural parts, right? So the, no place for the old folks to hang out. Um, there is also, according to this statistic, uh, I believe I heard from somebody else that it was much higher. The, the population of the uh, white was about 88, and Asian was about 4%, or African American was about 3%, Hispanic about 2.6, and those that were two or more were about 2%. So, not an incredibly diverse population, but counting how many people are here today, there's over 
59,000 people out there. Now, I, that, we know that's not necessarily all unsaved people. There are probably saved people out there. But what, what do you really think the percentage of that is? 10%? Or, le or less, yeah. I would lean on the less side. But, um, but yeah, that's a lot of people that need to know Jesus Christ. We need to be praying. One of the things you should be praying for in a new pastor is somebody that will help lead the church in whatever the Lord would have you to do for reaching those people. We live in a day and age in which there's a lot of, there's a lot of crazy things that people do, and there's a lot of passivity as well. And though we believe the Lord is the Lord of the harvest, we should still be engaged in the work of the harvest, right? So you need someone who's going to have wisdom in guiding you in what that should be. So we also, though, should remember to pray, and this should be a lifetime burden of ours, to pray for the Lord to send workers into his harvest. The needs of workers are great. And we should be also willing in that to participate in whatever role the Lord would have for us. And I think that's really the, the attitude we should have. Not just, I'm willing to go to Africa, I'm willing to go here in the States or whatever. The bottom line is, Lord, whatever role you want me to have in outreach that I would be willing to do that. should pray about that as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are in control, that you are actively training and sending people out to do the work in your harvest. Thank you, Father, for the, the workers you sent to each of us to work in our lives and share the gospel with us that we would come to know you as Savior and Lord. Help us, Father, whatever the role is you'd have us to do, that we'd be willing to do it. Father, if there's some that you're going to call the mission field or a full-time ministry from here, I pray that there would be a willingness to obey that. And I pray that you'd help all of us, though, to recognize the needs around us, to be burdened for the lost, be diligent in praying for them, um, but also praying for workers and that we'd also be willing in whatever capacity you intend to be those workers. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.